Old Testament terminology first, in order to bless all nations. He's going to have to do that in a specific way. He cannot just ignore their sins. That can't be done. God is not a God who uh, ignores sins. It does not happen that way. But so if he's going to bring, as it opens up this section in chapter 40 with comfort, if he's going to bring comfort to sinful people, then there's going to have to be something that is eternally dealt with. And so uh, everything about the ministry of Christ, obviously we sit on the other side of the ministry of Christ, so we can see very clearly what's going on here. Um, in verse 3, for instance, this is about John the Baptist, preparing the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Uh, he identifies himself as this particular one who's going to prepare the way of the Lord. Uh, Jesus himself identifies uh, John the Baptist as this. And so the question to the people in Isaiah's day is, um, what, on what can we depend and so we see in verse 6, it, it introduces this idea, you know, what should we call out? Where should we go for all of this? And the response is, all flesh is grass. The, the, the answer cannot come from humans. We can't solve this problem. We cannot be the servants of the Lord on our own power. It doesn't work like that. All flesh is as grass, and all its beauty is just like the flower of the field. What happens to grass? What happens to flowers? They wither. They fade when the breath of the Lord blows on it. And by the way, that is a reference also to the Spirit of the Lord. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but there is an eternal thing that will not fade away. And that is the word of our God. And so the promise to carry out this intended salvation depends on the greatness of God. If God is not great, then sin will undo him. Sin is far more powerful than any person, any human, any human endeavor, any empire. It will take us all down. No matter how long we go along the way of virtue, eventually every empire crumbles under its own weight of sin. Every single time, we're in the middle of our own. And so when we look out into the world and we go, where is it that help can come from? Where is it comfort can come from? Any comfort that comes from mankind is fleeting. Fleeting. It'll go away. Any comfort that comes from empires, any, any peace that comes from peace treaties, eventually all crumbles away and becomes war and death and destruction again. This is what sin has done. And Isaiah is pointing this out. And by the way, in those two opinions, I am of the previous opinion. Uh, Isaiah writes this before it all happens. There's a lot of reasons for that, but I'm not going to get into that. The reality of all of this is that God is going to go up and say, look, not only is all humanity not trustworthy, so are your gods. And so for, for eight chapters, God lays out the futility of worshiping idols, which in, in the 8th century BC is every religion on earth except those who follow the Lord. Everyone had idols. Everyone. That was the way of the ancient world. Uh, there was not a religion without it. And God expresses the absolute futility of this. If you're going to seek eternal comfort, it's going to have to be in something that you didn't make. Because idols, at the end of the day, are made by the hands of man. What about their gods? In the ancient world, the gods were not separate from their idols. They were part and parcel to them. Um, as God will describe in these chapters over and over again, um, how futile it is. Somebody who goes out, he gives this picture, uh, somebody who goes out to the woods and pulls up a log, and he cuts it in half. With one side, he carves an idol. With the other side, he burns it and warms his house. 
one he bows down to, the other one consumes itself, and he thinks that this idol that he made with his own hands can save him. And so God says, how about this? How about you put it to the test? Toss it in the fire and see if it can save itself. It can't, obviously. It's a hunk of wood. So which means not only can man not help, but neither can their false gods. So if we're going to be looking for comfort, if we're going to be looking for an eternal comfort, that the people of God, sorry, hold that, that the people of God, I need to turn off this, uh, <laughs> this screensaver here. Um, if we're going to be looking for this ultimate comfort somehow, where the exile is over, sin is dealt with, and God's kingdom can finally come, then we cannot look for the solution in the ways of mankind. No matter how virtuous, no matter how good, no matter how well-intentioned, all of this is dependent on the greatness of God. And that is where we ended last week, uh, verses 9 through 13, really uh, brings all of this to bear in chapter 40. And it ends with where we ended last week, verse 13, who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel. In other words, you're going to need a great wisdom. You're going to need an enormous plan to pull this off. There's going to have to be something that mankind can't come up with. And here God says about this is that the Spirit of the Lord has already done this. There is an intention behind all of these things. Even the impending exile and judgment of Israel, right? A hundred years after Isaiah writes this, Israel and Judah go into captivity to Babylon. Israel, actually only a few years after this, Judah, the southern kingdom, goes into captivity about 120 years after this. And all of this says, for the people that are living at the time, what is Isaiah saying to them? All of this is part of an intended plan that is generations after you. You will never live to see this outcome. But rest in the Lord. He has his purposes that you will never see and never see come to bear. Um, and so as you go on through chapter 40 in your scriptures there, look, look for instance, uh, verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? What likeness will you compare with them? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and he, he goes and describes this futility of idols uh, for the next chapter and a half. And I want you to see at the end of chapter 41, uh, if you want to turn to that, you can see this reality after he goes through and saying that these idols cannot do anything. Here's a number of tests uh, to see if they can save themselves, but you depend on them to save you. How foolish is this? Um, uh, let's see. Behold it. Okay, then verse 28. Uh, but when I look, there is no one. Among, the, uh, among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they're all a delusion. Their works are nothing. This is a dependent on all empires, all peoples, and all idols. Uh, they're all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Empty wind. That is the same terminology for spirit. The breath. The, yeah. It, it's, it's a vain blowing. There is absolutely nothing that it can do. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have eyes, but they cannot see. And they have feet, but they cannot walk. Hands, but they cannot save. And there is absolutely nothing that comes from this. We learn from the scriptures that those who worship them become like them. To worship something without ears, without eyes, without seeing, without the faculties of this thing... As I've said many times, you become what you worship. You become what you worship. And in the fact of what God is saying here, the effect of worshiping idols 
is that you will fail to see and hear the true message of God's kingdom. You will instead be sidetracked to something else. This happens time and time again in Israel's history, and there is something first. Very next verse, chapter 42, verse 1. The Lord's chosen servant. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Again, now we're extending well past Israel to this servant will not just be a servant like Israel was a servant, where where their service was only dedicated to the nation of Israel. Here we have God's spirit going out into all the world in this servant, bringing justice forth from all the nations. So instead of the people of the Lord, depending on these nations for salvation or their gods, what God is saying back to them is says, I have a servant on which all the nations will depend. Isn't that the one you want to be looking to? He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens. Now look, look at this. This is not just one of the gods of this world. This is not something mankind has come up with. The idols are made by man, but this God made man. He's the one who created the heavens and stretched them out, spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, by the way, the same word for spirit, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord and I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind to bring to them a message that will wake them up. You are depending on idols. You are depending on empires and peace treaties. This has made you blind. It has made you look for promises that cannot deliver. This is something that the servant of the Lord will do by the spirit of the Lord. So what are we to bring out from this? God says here, I will not share my glory with another, verse 8, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, new things I now declare. I'm going to tell you the future before it happens. By the way, that's why I take the opinion of the previous one, because God speaks of it right here. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Why? Because the Spirit of the Lord brings life. The Spirit of the Lord always brings life. And so the response of the people of God is to trust in what God had intended, even if they don't understand the outcome. For the people that are in Isaiah's day, this is a good message and also a very hard one to hear. There is a salvation coming in the future that you will never see with your own eyes. And until then, you you live in this world of sin while looking forward to a salvation that you do not fully understand. We are in the same boat with that, by the way. We do not fully understand salvation and how its effects play out in eternity, but we do know that all this suffering is still worth it because God does not abandon his people, right? As we continue through these chapters, again, it comes back to this reality that there is nobody that's going to save them. We see towards the end of chapter 42, 
We have Israel's inability to both see and to hear. All of these expressions of their inability brought on by serving other gods. And God, through all of chapter 43, says, There is no other God that saves you. I am the only one that can save you. And he finishes off with that in verse 25 in Isaiah 43. I I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance and let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned, that's Adam, and your mediators transgressed against me, that's everyone else. Therefore I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction in Israel to reviling. But now, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord who made you. Again, this is the other way around. Idol makers make their gods. Those who serve the Lord are made by him. Thus says the Lord who formed you, or excuse me, who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. That's another word for Israel, by the way. Verse 3 is where we're headed. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. God goes on to express that there is no other God to trust in. This is not just the strongest of gods. There is no God that can save. There is no God that has made the heavens and the earth outside of the one that they are already in contract with. It is important for us when we go back to this and trying to understand the role of the Spirit in the midst of all of this to see that the transition that's going to have to take place to save people from their sins is a transition on par with death to life. To bring something from death to life is to recreate it. It is not to say that it is uh, just yet another miracle. It is something on par with creating the world. To bring somebody from death to life is not to just look to a corpse and go, let me give you CPR really quick. No, it's to look to bones and to have flesh wrap around them again, skin, intention, mind, recreated fully, the breath of life. And what? Go ahead. That's a change, right? Yeah, oh yeah. Even in Second Corinthians five seventeen says, "If anyone is in Christ, he's a new New creation." creation. Exactly. Passed away, behold, all things become new. Just like in verse nine and forty-two, it talks about. So there has to be a change of some sort. Yes. Oh, complete change, because the reality is, is uh, people can attempt to alter their lives. And they can do that to a great extent. And this is, this is why the focus is never on the change. The focus is on God. Because people can change. We can band together and do good things. It can happen all the time. That is not sufficient because sin will eventually undo us. Uh, and this is what God is saying. Yeah, do peace treaties with, with Egypt work out for a few years? Sure. Yeah, they bring temporal peace. But what are we learning right now? We, we tried after World War II in, in the world, the entire world. We never tried this before. We tried to bind together to end all wars. We wanted to stop, so we made international treaties across oceans. We made them across continents, and we were going to stop all wars. If you're familiar with the history book, have there been any wars since the late 1940s? More than 
any other century, in fact, because we have more people. It doesn't matter how many treaties you make, people are sinful. It will always take on that role. And how do we address that? Well, we keep trying to address it on man's level. How's that going to end? And God's been telling us here for 2,700 years. There's always going to come a failure. Always. doesn't matter how much you do it. You try to fix things man's way, it will fail. Because sin is stronger than man. Which means sin is actually stronger than anything man can make. Idols. Which means we can't look to idols, we can't look to empires, we can't look to humans, we can't look to churches, we can't look to anything to solve sin. What we look to to solve sin is, as God keeps saying to him, just him. That's it. Sin is more powerful. Look, sin is so deceptive, it took out a third of the angels. Do you really think that we can withstand this? What God is saying to this is saying, there is absolutely nothing else you can hope in. Not only because it's practically so, but because sin is far more powerful than us. Even us all joined together. Besides me, there is no God, no rock, nothing else. And as you were saying, Ralph, it is recreation that is needed. This is why the plan in, uh, in eternity future, as we see, as we uh, laid out that, the plan in eternity future is that God's kingdom truly does come. Oh, goodness. Sorry, hang on a second. Oh, forget it. Never mind. God's plan eventually is that not only are his people remade, so is this world. Everyone looks at this world and says, you know, uh, well, it's so fallen, it has all this sin in it. You know, maybe God just did his, he did pretty good with his creation, but the next one's going to be amazing. God did everything in this creation that he's going to do for the next one. This creation was not halfway made. This creation is in a fallen state. God is not going to just remake uh, a new planet somewhere. He's going to recreate this one. Just as it was destroyed with water, and then what happened was, was an age completely different than what was before. I don't think most Christians have an appreciation for how different the world was before the flood. You wouldn't recognize it. That was absolutely destroyed with water. The next time it's absolutely destroyed with fire. But it's still this planet. We will still be in this solar system with God ruling this entire world. Directly, physically, spiritually, on every level. And what, what he is continually expressing to this is that this is not something that we can bring about. Even as the Lord's servants now, we don't have that ability. We can't make that. Like, I mean, if you want to see your inabilities, go up and try to bring something back from the dead. Before you can say that you can bring peace on earth, you have to be able to create the earth. Sure? What was the time frame again when Isaiah... Uh, predicted, predicted Christ and when Christ, like when was that? 750 years beforehand. Beforehand. Yeah. Okay, I knew, I thought it was fine. So, okay, so, yeah, so he is generally considered to be writing the book of Isaiah in the year 711. Uh, obviously, the book is long and it takes place over a series of years um, from like 720 to like 705, that kind of window there. Uh, Jesus obviously didn't come until, you know, zero and to about 30 uh, AD. So add 30 years to that, about 750 years beforehand. Now, 
the northern kingdom is taken away uh, to Syria in the 700s, like right after Isaiah writes. But the southern kingdom, who sits there on their high hill, Mount Zion, with the temple and everything, goes, ha, God will never let us fall. We don't even have to worry about being faithful. We're taking care of his temple. And God says, oh, really? That's what the book of Jeremiah is all about. Um, yeah, I'm going to wipe out not only you, but the walls, the temple, everything. And that's why Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. He writes a bunch of his writing, like literally sitting on the ruined walls of Jerusalem, trying to figure out what in the world is next. And so Isaiah talks about all of that, but that's not until 586 that that happens. That's 120, 130 years into the future. And Isaiah actually writes further than that. After Babylon falls to Persia, one of the kings in Persia is named Cyrus, and he's the one that gives the instructions to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Isaiah talks about him in the very next chapter. Years, centuries before he's born. This is why people have that second opinion that, oh, well, that must be written after the fact because God can't foretell the future, right? But if God's going to foretell the future with absolute specificity, look at, look at chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed. Now, this is, this is a temporal servant that God's going to use to bring about his purposes to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped. Isaiah is writing this in about 710, 712 B.C., Cyrus isn't born until 500 BC, 210 years later. The knowledge of this, see, God, when he uses prophecy, hardly ever talks with specificity on that level about the future, naming people and things like that. The only place in scripture where that would occur would be in this section where God is arguing for his deity above all the false gods of the world. And so if we were going to look for it anywhere in the scriptures, it's going to be right here in these chapters where God is putting false gods on trial saying, you have no ability to tell the future, but I do. You want to see one here, Cyrus, my servant centuries before his parents are born. I'll tell you what I'm going to do with him. That's remarkable. I mean, that, 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 empire is not even in control yet. Assyria is still in control. Babylon will take over Assyria and destroy Nineveh. And after that, Persia will come in during the time of Daniel. Remember, they Belteshazzar and the handwriting on the wall, the empire's taken away. Babylon crumbles and then Persia comes in. Cyrus is one of the Persian kings, time of Esther, all of that. That's two empires away. And what God is saying is, not only do I know that that's going to happen, I'm going to have one of those kings come in, set my people back, a remnant will come back, and he's going to pay for the rebuilding of the wall. That's the story of Haggai. So it's a remarkable thing that God does here because he's saying it to people who have no idea what he's talking about. This is, this is sent to the people in Judah, and they're going, we'll never fall. And God says, not only will you fall, I'm going to ensure that a remnant of mine will return, and I already have the king picked out. <laughs> kind of a remarkable thing. So would you say in verse 1 that this Cyrus had, had the spirit upon him? Cyrus, so, he so there's no explicit statements that Cyrus ever receives the spirit in that way. But what God is saying is what he is doing in all of the world, even if he's not explicitly saying that his spirit's doing this, is that his spirit goes out into the world and does what God desires. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, in other words, there is no limit to God's Spirit. There's no place. Now, you understand, it's one thing to say that the Spirit of the Lord is upon the King of Israel. It is quite another to say that God has grasped the right hand of the king of their domineering force in Persia, a foreign kingdom, in order to rebuild the walls. Why? So that we can rebuild the temple. Why? So that the people of Israel, the remnant, can come back. Why? So that they can bring forth the Messiah after this flesh. Which means God has this string of intention amidst a web of intention throughout the entire world, and nobody can undo it. Right? The people of the northern kingdom prided themselves on, uh, on their ability to defend themselves. And God says, um, I've stirred up the Chaldeans to come in and destroy you. And because they do so pridefully, then I'm going to destroy them. That's Isaiah chapter 10, by the way. And, and the people are trying to grasp with this reality, how is it that the Lord can say he's trying to save us if he's here punishing us? What does God say? My intention will win out. I will save my people. And so the real question comes back then, who are the people of God? How is it that they will know these things? Where will they come from? So, I mean, yes, sir. Cyrus was a Persian. Cyrus was the Persian king, yep. Yep. Uh, all of that is uh, a remarkable thing. To express, I want you to see something uh, since we're here. We're not going to look at every single statement through here, but I do want you to see Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. I want you to tell me if it sounds familiar. In the midst of all of this, God is then changing the focus from temporal servants like Cyrus or temporal kings or temporal suffering or temporal judgments, then he shifts for the last about 20 chapters of the book of Isaiah to eternal salvation. We, we saw the whole layout in there. there it's not going to end just at Jerusalem. It's going to end at the New Jerusalem, which I would agree with here. The New Jerusalem is not just one city. It is the entirety of the earth and all of the people of God dwelling in his light forever. That's what Revelation makes pretty clear. But here in chapter 61, we're still dealing with how it is this is going to be carried out. Look at verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now somebody's talking. Is that Jacob? Who is that? That's what we're going to, that's what we're getting to. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Uh, And it addresses this reality that... um, God had already said back in chapter 48, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Gospel. Good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Where, is it, where, is it, where do you know that from? Do you know? Verse two. Yeah, verses one and two. Where where have you heard this from? Somebody turn to Luke chapter four. In fact, let's all do that.
Luke 4, Luke chooses to talk about the beginning of Jesus's ministry back in Nazareth. Um, after his uh, temptation in the wilderness, Jesus begins his ministry in the uh, verse 14. Uh, notice this, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Uh, again, all of this is going to be done by the Spirit and the servant of the Lord. And a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country, Uh, And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now watch what he says in Nazareth. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, as was his custom. He went on uh, to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. By the way, there is one synagogue in Nazareth. Nazareth is like 250 people. These people knew Jesus personally. He grew up here. And, the, and um, uh, he stood up to read, Jesus stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled it to the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. By the way, that's an important little tidbit there. And set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He stops mid-sentence, rolls up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And everyone in the synagogue had their eyes fixed on him. And he began to say to them, basically the picture is he sits down, everyone's looking at him, he turns around and says to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your ears. The one that you've been wondering who was speaking in Isaiah chapter 61, who was speaking there? I am, Jesus says. That servant who's going to come and bring blessings to all the nations of the world, not just to Israel, who's going to bring blessings to all the nations of the world, who's going to preach good news to the poor, who's going to return sight to the blind, who's going to bind up the brokenhearted, liberty to the captives, opening the prisons who are bound, basically solving the sin problem of the entire world. I'm here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, in Isaiah, the prophecy goes further. Because most prophecies have a double hit. You have the year of the Lord's favor, and then what does he say? And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. See, that's going back to Isaiah 40 again. Comfort, comfort to my people. How will this happen? Grant to those who mourn in Zion, give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Now it's going to go into all sorts of detail. How is it that the servant of the Lord is going to accomplish this? Is it going to be in his great skill as a human? Or is it because the spirit of the Lord is upon him to do all of these things? Now, obviously, we are here to discuss the Spirit of the Lord. And so we understand that when we look at the ministry of Jesus Christ, we're not just looking at the second person of the Trinity doing this. We are looking at all three persons involved at all points. What does Jesus say? I don't do a single thing unless it's the will of my Father. And none of this do I do in my own power. It's only by the power of the Spirit. It's a remarkable thing. And that includes preaching. That includes miracles. That includes just living. And so, as Christians, what are we to learn from this? What things in our lives are we to take credit for by saying, look at my life and look at all of these good things that I have accomplished? If they are indeed good, where does the credit of them go? 
That goes straight to God. Even Jesus says all of these things are because of the Spirit, not because of me. Now, he was a perfect human. He could totally claim credit for doing perfectly human things. But that's not what he came here to do. He came here. What did the angel Gabriel prophesy about him and um, to, to Joseph in his dream? You shall name him Jesus. Why? He will save his people from their sins. That's what he's going to do. The servant of the Lord will accomplish this. And he's going, going to do it by the power of the Spirit. Now, let me extend something a little bit further to you that's going to actually interact with this morning's sermon. When we call the church the body of Christ, we are using very biblical language. But we are also expressing that everything we do is only by the power of the Spirit if it is to be done to the kingdom of God. Jesus did not preach. He did not do miracles. He did not do good works on his own power. Neither do we. In fact, we are told that specifically and directly in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. All of these things are done by the Spirit of the Lord because he is the one that brings life from death. And when we talk about salvation, if we talk about salvation or even evangelism, is just adding a moral code to your life or just following Jesus and trying to emulate him, we do a great disservice to what salvation truly is. Salvation is bringing dead in trespasses and sins to life again. It is only God that can do that, not our skillful preaching, not our, our great arguments, not our great ability to convince people. It is only the Spirit of God who does this. And he does it as he will, when he wills. And Nicodemus, was his mind was blown at this idea in John chapter 3, wasn't it, when we walked through there. And what does Jesus say? He says, the Spirit goes where it wills. And it is, so it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. You can't follow the Lord unless you're born of the Spirit. The Spirit is just like the wind. You can't see the wind. You can see the effects of it. You can see the leaves blowing in the trees and all this kind of stuff, but you can't see the wind. So it is with the Spirit of God. He goes where he wills. He does what he wills. Do we see the effects of it? Oh, yes. Life from non-life everywhere, and we are a testament to that. But you can't direct the wind. You don't even know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. It can't work like that. And Nicodemus is like, how, how can this be? And Jesus goes, you're a teacher in Israel and you don't know this stuff? This is, this is the way it always has been. God created the world like this through his spirit. The servant of the Lord will do this through his spirit. It is the life-giving force of the spirit that will bring rivers of water out of uh, into the desert that will bring like a willow tree set by a stream. It doesn't matter if it's in the midst of a drought. It extends its roots out to the water of life, and there it is. And, and Jesus' expression um, all through his ministry, uh, whether it's to the woman at the well and talking about the fact that there is water, that if you drink, you will never thirst again, or whether it's to the people who wanted him to just make magical food and more bread and make him king, he says, no, there's a food that if you eat, you will never hunger again. All pictures of the reality that that, that which sustains eternal life is gifted. It is not procured. And Christ is gifting it to those who trust in him. And Isaiah is writing about all of these things. And the reality of the failure of Israel was that they grieved the Holy Spirit, as he says in, six, in chapter 63. They rebelled against the Lord. They turned away from all of these things. In the book of Jeremiah, we'll actually see that the southern kingdom 
has, um, as Jeremiah writes, uh, well, actually, as the Lord says through the prophet Jeremiah, he says, you have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hewn out for yourself potsherds, broken potsherds that cannot hold any water. And the picture is this. God is a a spring of living water. He is a river of water. And the picture is that them sitting there with broken pottery trying to hold a couple of drops in the middle of a desert. And God says, that's, that's really what your good works are. That's really what your attempts to save yourself are. And yet here I am, you're not even paying attention to the river that's flowing through this desert. Now that's going to tie in directly with this morning in the service because Jesus talks about the promised one that's going to come, the Holy Spirit. And he likens it to a river in the desert, using the same kind of terminology, the same pictures uh, of what's going on here. As we continue to go through these things, go back to 61, as we continue to go through these things, we're going to see that the only way that God's going to bring both judgment and salvation is going to be by his Spirit. The year of the Lord's favor and also the day of vengeance of our God are both going to come because the servant of the Lord brings it through the power of the Spirit. Which means Jesus is not just here to save everyone. He's also here to enact the wrath of God onto a wicked world. It's the only way that salvation can come. Sin has infected this world and it must be eradicated. This is one of the things that I've even preached on here is the wonderful wrath of God. We tend to downplay it. That that should never be downplayed lest we become proud. The reality is I'm very grateful for the wrath of God because that keeps my sin in the ground to be eradicated as well. This is why we continually confess our sins so that we walk humbly with our God and remember what, what things are in our lives that are oriented towards the Lord are only owed to him. And our thanks go to him for this. Because without him, we would still be devoted to destruction. And rightly so. But thank God for the servant of the Lord. I do like that towards the end of the book of Isaiah, uh, its focus goes to those who depend on this servant and then calls all of them, in the plural, servants. That what he has and who he is then is delegated to them. We see that when we come to the day of Pentecost. Everything that Jesus was doing through the power of the Spirit then gets delegated to his people. Not six weeks after his ascension. Um, We'll get there. When we get there, it's going to kind of explode in understanding of what what we anticipate for the church. It'll also make things like speaking in tongues and gifts of prophecy and uh, word of faith and all that kind of stuff mean a whole lot more to us than it ever did before. It's not about who has these awesome gifts. It is about what God is doing in the world, no matter what we anticipate or desire. God will accomplish his purposes. Um, Let's pray, and then we're going to continue. We're almost going to start and pick up there uh, with the sermon this morning uh, in John chapter 7, so that's pretty awesome. Let's pray. Father, we're very grateful for this morning. We're thankful that What your spirit has done has enacted salvation in a world that could not come to life by itself. Father, we know the same existed for us, that if you merely held out the offer of salvation to us, not one of us would pick it up, for no corpse can do that. But you have raised us to new life, and those new lives trust in Christ. And we are grateful for this, Father. At the heart of who we are, 
If we are left to our own devices, we would never do good, not once. But Father, such is your grace that even in this world fallen, your common grace is extended even to this world so that people may be able to understand what is right and what is wrong, and yet oftentimes celebrate that which is wrong and condemn that which is right. Father, remove that from our minds and our hearts. We pray that you continually drive us to see your word as eternal and to see our role in your kingdom to come. We pray, Father, that you find us faithful only by the power of your spirit, not by the power of accountability partners or the power of our own gumption to do better tomorrow than yesterday. But Father, work through all of these things with your spirit who alone gives life. In your son's name, amen.